0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Joining the show today is Rob House, the author of Jack the Ripper and the Case for Scotland Yard's Prime Suspect. John Malcolm, the author of the Whitechapel Murders of 1888, Another Dead End. And Tom Westcott, the author of the Bank Holiday Murders and Ripper Confidential. And we are all here to welcome Adam Wood to discuss his really incredible new book, Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective. This is part one of a planned two-part interview. The second part, with a different set of panelists, will focus on Adam's biography of Swanson as a whole, covering his impressive research into Donald Swanson's entire career. While in this part, we are zeroing in on the material related specifically to his involvement in The Hunt for Jack the Ripper, the marginalia he left in his copy of Anderson's The Lighter Side of My Official Life, and the identification of a suspect at the seaside home, as well as Adam's opinion on who Kosminski <coughs> might have been. So welcome, Adam, and everyone else to the show today. Hey, thanks Thank for you Adam's. very much, Jim. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks here. very much for first time for me. I know, first time. Um, we've talked a lot in the past about bringing you on for one topic or another, but it never really seems to materialize. So um, <laughs> I don't think I've had anything interesting to say before, J.M., <laughs> and pro- probably haven't today either, to be honest. So. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, to get us started, although, as I mentioned, um, part two of our interview will dive into Swanson's entire career as a Metropolitan Police Officer. I was hoping we'd start things off today by having Adam give us a nutshell bio of Swanson, and his movements up the ladder of police officialdom, that put him in a position to be in overall charge of the Metropolitan Police's investigation into the Whitechapel murders.
1: Certainly, J.M. Um, well, Donald Swanson was born in 1848 in the far remote uh, part of Scotland, and I don't think initially had any, any plans to sort of join the police. His eldest brother had gone to the City of London police uh, at some point when Donald was still quite young. And Donald started a career in Scotland as a uh, as a teacher, but for one reason or another went, went to, down to London when he was nineteen years old and had a probably a nine month career as a city clerk in in the uh, uh, commercial offices of job one John mickle um, but he John, John mickle had to uh, decided to retire and Donald was looking for a job and literally saw a uh, an advert in the newspaper of the day wrote off to um, Go to the candidates' department and um, was accepted, and basically very very quickly um, went went through the motions of uh, all the initial training. Became a third class constable, rose up to a second class and first class constable very very quickly, and was transferred to a different division from where he was, which is Westminster. Um, then he was uh, went up to sergeant inspector, joined the detective department, and by eighteen eighty eight he just probably in January of that year to become a chief inspector, one of only six at Scotland Yard um, on a temporary basis. So he was based at Scotland Yard at the beginning of 1888, uh, 20 years into uh, his career. As I said, it had been quite a fast uh, series of promotions. And he worked on some interesting cases with some of the main players in the Metropolitan Police at the time, not least uh, Frederick Aberline, who had been on a, a play-in-close investigation of as early as 1871. So um, by the time uh, 1888 come along, he was he was well aware of uh, Fred Aberline and his other uh, uh, colleague that he worked with uh, intensively he was uh, Chief Constable uh, Frederick Williams, Dolly, Dolly Williamson. So that's where he was in, um, at the time of the Ripper murders started, working from Scotland Yard under, pretty much under Williamson.
0: And I'd like to open this up right at the beginning to our panelists to ask questions or give us their impressions of Adam's book, uh, with an emphasis on the material in it about the Ripper case. And, and then we'll try to get in some specifics. Well,
2: first of all, uh, speaking in general terms about, um, Adam's book, uh, It really, I think, one of the things that uh, impacted me the most was how it changed my perspective of Donald Swanson, and it's a perspective that that I have that I believe I share uh, with possibly the majority of Ripper book readers, and that is the idea that Swanson was this clerk who was like a right-hand man to Anderson, kind of a yes man, and, you know, When you read this book, the thing that really jumped out at me in reconsidering the hierarchy of the the people at Scotland Yard during the Ripper murders, Charles uh, Warren, Robert Anderson, later on Melville McNaughton, and of course Swanson, is that he alone was an actual police officer. He was a constable. He was a detective. He was on the beat. He was chasing down clues, sifting evidence for decades. Uh, he had a. He wasn't some gentleman brought in because of who he was friends with. He literally earned his position uh, through sweat and uh, a lot of effort. And when you talk of Kosminski, uh, and th- for the twenty odd years I've been in ripperology, the conversation about Kosminski, the suspect, inevitably revolves around sir robert anderson and pretty much anderson alone and his veracity and that makes it easy for people who look at anderson and go oh he was this you know cocksure um posh debutante you know idiot it makes it easy to um just get rid of uh kosminski as a suspect or from you know if you come at it from the other way and go "Well, no anderson was was righteous he was he was very honest He said what he thought, you know, he did this. And And then you go, Kosminski was a serious suspect. But what I think Adam has done with his book, and this is why everybody with an interest in Victorian life, Victorian policing, or Jack the Ripper should read it, is he brings Donald Swanson firmly into the discussion of uh kosminski the suspect by pointing out some that to me you know really bringing light to the fact that swanson uh was not a yes man to anderson uh was not just a a a pencil pushing clerk this guy knew more i think more than anderson did by a mile about the ripper case and yet we have swanson um you know, what was it, 1895, the, the earliest uh, mention I recall from the book, where he says um, that he believes Jack the Ripper had uh, been caged in asylum and had had already died. And what that is, is Swanson saying, I also believe Kosminski, the suspect, was likely Jack the Ripper. Um, that strengthens the argument in my mind of kosminski as a suspect in general and a potential jack the ripper uh, because he has to my mind more veracity than than anderson so uh that was my big takeaway i learned a lot of details my big takeaway was a greater respect for swanson as a detective uh the life he must have lived traveling the world chasing down criminals Uh, building cases that would then just fall flat because they were short of evidence or putting together the evidence over an excruciatingly long time to finally nail a criminal. He did all these things, uh, and he did them before um, 1888. And so I think that is something anyone who reads this book is going to bring away with them. And you're never going to lose that perspective when you look back at, um, you know, like if you go back and read Rob's book, Um, or John's book, you're now going to have a, I think, a new layer of knowledge going into it. So
3: I think, um, I think Tom nails it with, um, the word perspective and, um, it, it, uh, between perspective and context, uh, it, it, um, not only the book not only fleshes out Swanson but with the interactions with all the other officials Dolly Williamson or or anybody it really brings to life a, the whole the entire network as opposed to just a few individuals who said a few specific things um, and it also you know that the perspective and the context of the the Ripper murders it, it goes to show that it wasn't it wasn't the, the Dominant kind of factor, and that his life was and career was much more important and much more involved as were the other players than simply just the Whitechapel murders, which were almost just like a a very brief blip in time. As far as if you look at the actual um, length of the investigations that in the in the time frame of the murders, it was it was just a it was make the, the most sensational case perhaps but it really does bring home the the inner workings of the police and it humanizes them and uh it's uh, it's it's definitely something that this book is something that everybody who is interested in this case should have um not just for the information on the ripper murders but um, for everything else because it is really you know, perspective, again, I think is, is, is the key word. And this really, really helps um, on many levels.
4: I just wanted to say, um, you know, I have not read the whole book yet. Um, but, um, you know, I'm kind of just blown away by the amount of research that's gone into it, the amount of work uh, Adam's been doing. And um, you know, I've been kind of really jealous, uh, in know, in a weird way of the the degree of access that that Adam seems to have had to, uh, you know, say like the, you know, the Swanson family, and uh, you know, uh, he he occasionally posts these tantalizing, sort of teasing things on <laughs> Facebook, which, which have been driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> not alone. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I mean, I mean, the book. Just seems so in depth uh, and really great. Uh, the photographs are wonderful. I'm just looking right now at this photograph of the Tranter pistol, which, you know, I had here in my house for about six months. Um, I kind of missed yeah. that thing, um, but yeah, it looks great. I I, uh, I got to hold it too. Yeah, so I mean, I'd be really interested to hear Adam talk about you know his the access I guess that he's had to the Swanson family and the the interactions he's had and you know, I kinda it kind of seemed to me that it would be possible you could find something in a box. I mean, did you go through their attic or what exactly was the deal there? It's,
1: well to to be honest, Rob, it was it, i can't believe my luck on on the, uh, the amount of material that the, the family had kept. Um I'm sure we'll we'll talk about the the marginalia in uh, Swanson's copy of Anderson's book later on, I'm sure. But they don't seem to have thrown anything away that, that Donald left behind. Certainly there don't seem to be a family that when, when one member passes away, they, they bequeath um, one particular item to someone or, you know, uncle Johnny gets this item. Everything just seemed to be kept all together. And when, one person passed away, for instance, Donald went and his wife, Julia kept everything. She died and it just stayed in the house. And the two daughters just seemed to have collated everything. And, um, when I was writing the history of the marginalia for Ripologist magazine back in early 2012, Keith, Keith Skinner said, "Well, you know, this is this is looking really good because he's he's got his name as co-author, but believe me, he didn't do very much at all." He <laughs> he basically said, "Would you like to to meet the Swanson family? You know, they've they've got one or two items. I'm sure they'd be happy for you to look at." So I said, "Well, yes, yes, please." And and I talked with Neville via email, Neville Swanson. And it, it, as it turned out, they didn't live too far from me. So we, so we arranged a lunch. Uh, he brought along um, a bag full of, full of a few things just to show sort of thing they had. Um, and I finished off the article on, on the marginalia, but basically Neville was very keen for, for me to look for everything that they had. So I, every time I met him, he'd it, bring another box full of materials. And it was completely unfiled. There'd be things in envelopes where the, the contents didn't match the envelope Um some stuff was stapled together some stuff was just a loose sheet and they just didn't really you know And there's no disrespect they really didn't know what they had and i i, I just looked through one box and it was nothing to do with the ripper or, or the marginalia or anything but it was you know one of one of swanson's ledgers his personal address book this sort of thing and i, I said to neville well there's there's so much here i, I think it make a fascinating book um would you be okay if, you know, let let me have access to everything if I was to write the book? And of course he was pleased because he, his father Jim had been keen for, for Donald Swanson have his story told to a wider world. Um, so every time I, I, I met Neville, he, he brought along a box, I'd take it home, photograph everything and, and then basically swap it with another one. And I think that happened seven or eight times. There's just an enormous amount of material. Um, and I've started cataloging it, putting, you know, taking the photograph albums, they' got people that they got images they didn't know who they were, so I've managed to identify them against uh, cross cross referencing to other uh, albums so you yeah. know there's all this material and and one thing I had asked uh, Neville for was the um two ripper items we know one was the list of watchable victims that Swanson had written, and the other one was his copy of Warren's memorandum placing him in charge of the case. Neville had never seen them, he didn't know where they were. Um, I asked Keith Skinner and and Stuart Evans and they hadn't seen them since 2000 when they'd borrowed them, so they were a bit concerned that they'd gone gone astray, but luckily enough on the very last box that Neville gave me material, there there they were just right at the bottom, Um, and just an example of the sort of material they had, those two documents were alongside a letter from um, Swanson's former head teacher at Thurso, recommending him for a job, which is probably one of the earliest things, alongside a letter from Howard Vincent, former director of the CID, congratulating him on, he, on his retirement. So there was a whole whole range of material, and it was just all over the place. So I've managed to catalogue it and put it in semblance of order now. Um, so it was it was completely amazing what they did have, but probably the best thing is that there was no pressure on on me from Neville or anyone else to tell a story that they believed to be the case, because you know we all know that in the past. Some family members have spoken to the press, and they said, "Boy, well, it's Aaron Kuzminski. Um, we we know he was what happened to him." Um, it turned out they they didn't really know that, but they didn't. They certainly didn't force me to tell their story. It was a case of, "Here's the material. Do do what you like with it." So um, that's where we are, and, and, and I, you know, I've I'm very uh, grateful for your kind words on. The book, but I'm sure that if it was Rob or John, or Tom had access to the material, it would have been equally equally as in depth and um, as interesting as hopefully my books turn out to be. Hey Adam. Uh, well, I I want, I'm
2: going to say I want to <laughs> argue with that for a second because I don't know that I would be up to that challenge myself. If anything, when I was reading the book, I was thinking my next Ripper book that I'm planning to write, um, Swan the book Swanson really upped the the bar for my 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 book, and I think others coming out, because if I'd written this, I would have said, here's the school Swanson went to. What Adam does is he's like, here's the school Swanson went to, here's who built it, and here is what they put into the foundation stone. Here is an itemized list of everything in the foundation stone of this book, which I found immensely interesting. And and I'm just isolating one example, but it's like this throughout the book to where you feel like having read the book, you are an, a, now an expert on things you didn't know crap about before you uh, started reading it. So,
0: yeah, it's almost anyways. like an encyclopedia. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not boring. It's not boring. I no, but that I out. mean, as, it could, as a reference work, you know, um, just the level of detail is, is encyclopedic. And you were going to say, Rob?
4: I was just going to ask Adam, I mean, you know, we obviously know that Swanson wrote in the margin of Anderson's book. I think he pointed out that he wrote in the margin of other books as well. That's, um, that's right, yeah. Did he do any other writing, I guess, is what I want to ask. I mean, you didn't find, obviously, any journal or that type of thing.
1: Well, there's, um, you know, in, in his, uh, we, uh, again, the books which came to me from, from the Swanson family, there's a copy of Crim- uh, Anderson's Criminals and Crime. Um which again was in swansons library but th- then there's there's marginalia in that book um nothing to do with the ripper of course but he's it, it, written on a few pages in there there's there's um marginalia in his copy of uh, S- uh inspector John sweeney's memoirs and there's 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 further um uh, marginalia in other pages of the light side of my official life not not just page one thirty eight in the End notes um about different. Uh, things but what I was interested in is that there's a very famous case that Swanson was involved in at the end which was the recovery of the Gainsborough Painting Duchess of Devonshire um, it went missing well, it sold in in 1876 by Adam Wirth um, who took it to America and it finally came back in 1901 Swanson by this time was a superintendent and facilitated the return with the Pinkerton agency and uh, the Agnew family who owned it Uh, and eventually a copy of the Pinkerton booklet about that painting and their their work with Adam Worth to get it returned, found its way to Swanson's library. So there's a copy of that in the Swanson archives. And I was looking through that and there's, again, there's several crossings out or or corrections in the marginalia of of that that leaflet. There's a a booklet by um, a chap called uh, Windus who who wrote a book it's a little bit of a i don't a dramatized version of of sort of various crimes of the day and if you've read the book i know we'll talk about this next time jm but there's a case the philosopher's stone and that appears in this book by windus and it's probably from about 1907 or something just after swanson retired and that 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 describes the case but it also describes swanson physically and he says what a great detective he is and this sort of thing but again there's scribbled notes alongside that case so it's, it seems that pretty much anything that Donald Swanson got his hands on that he had a personal knowledge of he was very happy to you know correct something or add more information um and I, and i i think that that's pretty much the case there was there's things in the um personal address book uh that he, he may write someone's address but then when they move he you know he sort of crosses it out and he puts a little note alongside that i think i think that was part of his part of his character that he would he would pretty much sort of scribble on anything. Um, and, and there's certainly, as I said, there's lots of examples of that in the Swanson family archives.
4: I, I can't remember if you wrote on this. Uh, did you speculate on when you thought Swanson had written the marginalia? I mean, I know that, in my impression, he wrote it on two different occasions. And I think, right. I think the assumption has been that there was a certain... A considerable amount of time between those two writings
1: did did you ever speculate or
4: find anything uh, about-
1: there's two different color pencils in the marginalia one is a, a gray graphite one is a sort of a um a, a purple tinged pencil um and it seemed a bit you know obviously that was written at a different at a different date there's no indication why but when um i got my hands on the personal address book and and went through that there's lots of examples of purple pencil and um, grey, grey graphite pencil, and then there's black ink. But happily for us, on many occasions, um, Swanson has written where well, he's written someone's date, uh, date of um, their their passing, or someone's moved. He puts a line through. Like for instance, in Anderson's uh, entry in the address book, he's put, just puts a line through dead, not <laughs> and puts the date. Um, and so, so by that you can sort of date when he's written those entries. And there's one entry for. Um, someone moving i think in a purple pencil and it's dated 1923 which is also the year before swanson died so i got a bit excited and i thought well does that mean that he wrote the purple part in 1923 because that that seems to have been written before the the gray pencils uh, side so that does that does that indicate that the whole thing was written towards the end of his life but then going through further pages there's there's dates in a purple pencil, dating from uh, 1896. So I I think that it could have been, again, any time in between 1910 when it was published and 1924. Unfortunately, I can't give any further info on that. My my personal feeling is that he wrote the first part of the marginalia on page 138, probably soon after receiving the book, and then the, the, uh, the, the second part and the end paper notations, probably sometime afterwards. And, and i mean you know even uh, months or possibly years afterwards right i th-
3: i think that um it would be a very interesting article um to read about swanson's other marginalia i i think that that you could probably compile something that would be um very varied and actually put help put his marginalia in anderson's book um in a different light um as well i i would i would certainly be uh be up for more on that
2: i agree i actually okay. was kind of surprised that we didn't that i didn't see that in the book i thought there would be uh, like chapters devoted to other marginalia about other matters um is there a
1: plan for that adam well there is now <laughs> <laughs> right. um, no I, I, I think, sign me up <laughs> it's, it's something that i put in the um the ripologist article in 2012 um, yeah, I remember that. Seen, I do. It was a mu- much more in-depth in um, piece about the marginalia. And, you know, the, although although the, the Swanson book is, is, is pretty big, I just had to chop some of that stuff out. Right. Um, so perhaps, perhaps that's something I should have put, I should have left in. It's, it seems like the type of writing that he does in the in
4: marginalia in general is to either correct something that somebody wrote or to sort of add to it. I mean, that's, that's certainly the right. a, yeah, certainly a that. sense that you get from the Anderson marginalia.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, on the chronology. Um, and with the Ripperologist article you mentioned that you wrote in 2012, <clears throat> um, the um, second, and this is getting really inside baseball, probably for a lot of our listeners, uh, I would I would think. Um, but um, In 2009, there was a famous squabble between Stuart Evans and Paul Begg and and also involving articles in Ripperologist magazine in which Stuart Evans made some arguments that – and I'll ask you if you've received an an opinion from Stuart Evans about your book. Um, Maybe that's nothing that you can make public, but – um, but anyway, uh, Evans had a lot of issues that he outlined in an article in Ripperologist magazine back in 2009, um, which were, ca- um, answered, um, by Paul Begg, but th- this all took place before a lot of, um, before I believe your access was granted, um, to, to the Swanson archive. And then also I believe after your 2012 article is when you received, um, when you, you were able to provide the document examiner with more examples of his writings, um, that's right. That were, was able to, like we mentioned the different color of pencils, but there is also more evidence that he did write with a shaky hand towards the end of his life. And so you were able to provide a lot more examples of that. Um, which I'm not saying that your book necessarily uh, puts to rest all of Stuart Evans's concerns that he expressed in 2009. In particular, it still leaves open the, the, um, the question about just the procedure (laughs) of the seaside home identification in and of itself (laughs) being officially sanctioned or not. But a lot of Stuart Evans's concerns from 2009, as far as the date that the um, Kozminski was the suspect sentence was written, yeah. it has been put to rest as being before the publication of Martin Fido's uh, book, The Crime Detection and Death of Jack the Ripper, and things yeah. like that. So maybe walk us through a little bit of the evidence that we have now that um, that goes towards its authenticity
1: um yeah. well when the uh when the uh lighter side of my official life with the marginalia um was loaned it was loaned to the crime museum um at scotland Yard, and com- again completely lucky because keith's gonna happen to be working in the office that day at the crime museum and neville neville swanson phoned i think looking for information about that charter pistol that rob looked after for, si- for six months Keith, Keith happened to answer the phone and, and had a discussion. And he said, "Well, do you do you still have the uh, the, the, the book with you with the marginalia?" And Neville said, "Yeah, it, it was under lock and key." Keith asked whether the family would be happy for them to loan it to the museum to uh, to go on display. Um, and I and you know Neville was happy for that to be the case. And, and so sort of they handed it over. Uh, now the the curator at that time was a chap called Alan McCormack um and he just took the opportunity not through doubting uh, the marginalia or, or anything but just took the opportunity because uh the uh, dr davies who was the forensic forensic handwriting scientist that the met were using at the time just just happened to be around so he said well we've got this marginalia and we've got this uh, ledger also written by donald swanson would you do a uh, would you do a test you know sort of look at the handwriting um before it goes on on display so uh, Dr. Christopher Davies did this uh, report uh, did the testing, did the report um that came out in two thousand and ten uh, two thousand and six rather and and said um well there's 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 strong evidence uh, theres there's strong evidence that um, Donald Swanson did write the margin but if i had if I had better um verified samples to sort of test against then it you know' it'd be easier to make a better judgment." Now the 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 ledger that he tested was at that was, time was something... he was
0: at that time he was working off of photocopies.
1: Well, no, that was the chap called uh, Doctor Richard Totty that Paul Paul Begg gave uh, a copies photocopies to oh, okay. while they were all working on a on a, a television program in two thousand. That was that was much earlier. Um, no, he was Doctor uh, Davies was working from a ledger written by Swanson in the early eighteen eighties. But the problem is, it was written in black ink. So mm. it wasn't really much of a comparison with the, the the small pencil notations in the marginalia. So this was, you know, that's pretty much all he had at the time. Well, when I went through the archive uh, in 2012 and found all these personal letters and, the, uh, say, the address book, lots and lots of uh, things in Swanson's handwriting, um, I contacted Dr Davies. I asked the Crime Museum for his email address and was given, given his contact details, got in touch um again this was for the repologist article on the marginalia i said well do you remember this test um and he very quickly came back yeah he, he did he thought it was a very interesting uh project for him to work on and i said well you did mention if you had other material which is more more perhaps uh, with the time period of the marginalia probably written in and and in a uh, a pencil right um style you'd you'd be uh you might be in a better position so i found this material would you be willing to sort of come along and and, and look at it and he, he was very keen to do so so i'd i'd already arranged to visit um neville swanson's brother bill who holds um the largest of my official life in the archive uh, to go along and photograph that for the article and i i said to bill well, would you mind if dr davis comes along explained why um I wanted him there, and because he was very happy to do so, so we left we left dr Davies in a room with with the marginalia and and a big pile of papers um and he and he re redid the test um interestingly at that time i am sure you remember there was quite a bit of debate on casebook message boards, and j t r forums about the authenticity of the marginalia and that there was uh, a couple of people were was not not very uh although um, well they, were, they were basically suggesting that Jim Swanson might have forged the marginalia and certainly the name or the line Kuzminski was a suspect. So I, I specifically asked Dr Davies to test the, the marginalia against samples of Jim Swanson's handwriting. Um, and the end result was that uh, Dr Davies upgraded his report to say there was very strong evidence to show that Donald Swanson wrote the marginalia and no evidence to show that Jim Swanson had written it. Um and i said, well when when we finished and we we sort of went our separate ways at the tube station, I said, "Well, what can we do to sort of improve on that and get a definitely wrote the marginalia uh, and he said, Well, you're never going to get you're never going to get a professional document examiner to give a give a definite, but as far as I'm concerned that's that's the best you know it's the best evidence you're going to get um and I think most people will be happy with that, but of course, when I commented when I, when the article came out, there were some people on forums saying, Well, why did you ask about Jim Swanson's handwriting if you weren't didn't think there was something funny going on. And of, of course, you know, if I hadn't have asked that, I would have been suspicious because I didn't ask him to test it, so couldn't really win on that. But um what 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 I think was, was interesting um, with with that testing is that the um the letters which which came up um that Dr Davies used, I found him quite early on when I was going through the materials. There was there was two letters from Donald Johnson to his grandson also also Donald um and he talks about having having to stop writing because he's he's his hands shaking paralytically um and he's gone back later in the day and finished a letter off uh, interestingly that letter is uh, first part is in grey pencil and the second part is in purple so he's you know he, he's writing well let's uh I've got a I, I, I've got paralytic shakes um I don't know if you guys remember, but in Dr. Davies' first test, he said, well, the marginalia writing looks as though it's, it's written by someone with a faint hand tremor. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's pretty good evidence to me. But, of course, some of the people who didn't want it, the, the marginalia to be written by Donald Swanson said, well, it was a bit too good to be true that the, these letters that, that say that had surface, But I don't know what you can do really about that
0: yeah and there was also suspicions that um because of the centenary year um that someone was um capitalizing on on the uh publicity uh surrounding the centenary but then your book yeah, um yeah your book reproduces all the evidence that Jim Swanson had been attempting to get this stuff published since like at least nineteen eighty one and um and in the news of the world um inner office memo even though they didn't publish an article in 1981 you're able to uncover the inner office memo from the news of the world crime reporter uh, that yeah. that states that the marginalia names Kosminski as the suspect that's um, right which um, you know i understand that back in 2009 this evidence wasn't available for the people who were questioning the authenticity of the the uh, marginalia you know yeah. this wasn't available yeah. for them to examine, so at the time they they were asking legitimate questions based Absolutely. on based on the evidence that was available then. but I do think that to today we're getting we're getting like as like you said as close to a definitive answer as we're ever able to get.
2: Right. Yeah, I, if, I, if I can I, add real quick uh, about the margin, because I'm not a Kosminski person, um, you know, uh, so I'm I don't have a horse in this race. But uh, expert testimony was fantastic. Uh, I I thought the letters Adam reproduced were. Swanson is saying, I have a shaky hand. In fact, it makes mm-hmm. me wonder if a purple, if well, for someone suffering from what he was with the shaky hand, if maybe once that set in, maybe a different kind of pencil was easier to write with. Uh, it was maybe less shaky and he would switch pencils sometimes depending on the state of his hand. But back to the marginalia, there was and still is, I I run the largest Jack the Ripper Facebook page, and I still see occasionally people posting doubts about the veracity of the marginalia. Mm. Um, Put all expert testimony aside, and if you just look at the historical record, either Jim Swanson is the ripperologist par excellence who became the first person in history to connect the name Kosminski with Anderson's Polish Jew, or this document, the marginalia, had been in existence for decades within the family, was penned by Donald uh, Sutherland-Swanson himself, and is legitimate, um, I mean, those really are your options. And to my mind, they're, you know, we, I think we have definite proof. Adams' stuff backs up everything that we suspected 10, 15, 20 years ago, and in my mind, does prove beyond any reasonable doubt now that none of the marginalia was added at a later date by another hand, um, but I do want to say all the skepticism back in the day, two thousand and nine and before, that was healthy skepticism, yeah. and it was that se- skepticism I think that pushed Adam and others to look for the evidence to to prove it either way. And I, but I want to point out, in my opinion, again, no horse in this race, Kozminski wise, uh, that burden has been met. Uh, it's all in the book. It's one of the reasons why, although it's not technically a ripper book, Swanson, it, it goes beyond must read in my opinion. We always say the word "this is a must read." When I was reading Swanson, my thought was, "This isn't a must read. This is a you must put down whatever you're reading now and read this." And because uh, <laughs> it's it's that crucial. Anyways, I apologize for interrupting.
1: Well, I, I would say on that on that film that it's not it's not necessarily a case of of pushing kasimski or trying to find uh any evidence on that because i you know we will talk about it later on i mean i'm not i'm certainly not pushing kasimski as a suspect but i'm i'm following you know the history of, uh, of donald swanson and i think that's really the most the most important thing um a, again going going back to the 2012 article and it appears in the book um the unused news of the world article about, about marginalia uh was, was written or was drafted up by a guy called Charles Sandell, who was the chief crime correspondent at the News of the World. Um, he he prepared an article and uh, and and Keith Skinner had, had found this um, in draft, sort of handwritten corrections and everything, in, in filing cabinet in Scotland Yards Crime Museum. Um, but no he had no no reason to you know, no understanding of how it got there, who'd put it there, how long it had been there. No, I no idea. And of course, that that sounds suspicious when when I put it in the article, um, we didn't know what, how it got there. So it was a case of suspicious people saying, well, that is a bit of a coincidence that the article is coming out to say, oh, um, Jim Swanson gave the name Kuzminski to Charles Sandell back in 1981. And he, here all of a sudden is an article that talks about Kuzminski, um, with no provenance of of where it's come from. So I, I couldn't answer that. I you know, just didn't know at the time. But one thing I did do, just trying to close off that that line of inquiry or research, if you like, I, I wrote to Charles Sandell's widow, widow, who was in a um, whose address I found on the on the UK um, director of inquiries, and I didn't hear anything. Um, I thought she she may well have passed away. But about four months later, well after the article came out, I had a letter from her son-in-law, a chap called Brian Hill, who 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 wrote to say, you know, sorry that it had taken a while. Um, Mrs Sandell had, had recently gone into a care home and he'd gone back to the house and picked up all the mail which had accumulated in the previous months to sort, sort through. Um, and he, 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 actually it was him who, who when when uh, Charles Sandell passed away, he was helping his mother-in-law clear all the, all the papers up. And um, one of these was the unused Ripper material. It was him who who presented it to Scotland Yard Crime Museum. And they remembered apparently whoever the creator was at the time, I think Bill Wardell probably remembered Charles Sandell as you know one of the few uh journalists from the news of mm-hmm. the world who was who was quite quite um respectable um so again it didn 't really mean much, but it just proved how that article that unused article did make it make its way from 1981 in charles sandell 's office to the crime museum, so that that could be closed off it 's not a case of trying to prove that kosminski was a ripper. It was a case of research in history and joining join the dots in between those, those two things happening.
0: Right. I want to ask you a little bit about um, the Swanson family and how um, we know that from your book that Jim Swanson was keenly interested in promoting um, Donald Swanson and getting him the recognition he believed that um, had been lacking um, yeah. and and then you and you also said earlier about how the family was never one to throw anything away, which is why you That's were perfect. able to get this vast archive. But but it was kind of in a shambles, um, and um, and we know that um, one of the arguments that Evans um, made back uh, in two thousand nine was the unlikelihood of his one the daughter the sisters uh the daughters of swanson who lived together who uh, apparently kept all this material in a trunk or something um had said that they had never bothered to look into any of this they never opened um any of his books so the the marginalia was left undiscovered for decades when it was in the possession of the sisters so um i'm curious um with your book now, um, were, were they um, was, how involved was Neville Swanson in, in um, were you like, um, let's see, how do I phrase this? Um, are, are you revealing to the family um, um, a career of Donald Swanson's that they didn't really know very much about? Or Were they um, really familiar with his career already and and did they help you along in your writing or how did the collaboration between the family and in your research and the writing of this book kind of work out?
1: well I think in um, to answer the the, the the second question there was there was no re- no real collaboration beyond Neville um, handing over boxes of materials. And, you know, the ledger that I mentioned earlier that Dr Davies first tested against, that that was kept by Swanson in between, I think when he joined the detective department, so in between the mid-1870s and about 1881, just before he arrested Lefroy, he, He'd write down all these cases, you know, a, a, a brief account of, of what he'd done and the criminals involved. Now, I, when I, I, I basically, the first thing I did was take that ledger and, and another couple of notebooks that that they've got and i just transcribed them all and sent the file to the family and they didn't know anything about it you know, <laughs> neville neville said well that, that's a great little case about I, I introduced the book with the 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 fraudulent medium um and neville would never that's in the ledger but neville neville was completely unaware of that story and and, and none of the other family members knew anything either i suspect that jim swanson probably had read everything and that's what gave him the, the sort of sense of his grandfather's career um but i i i, only, I honestly think that in terms of um what what donald had done, had uh, done achieved in his career they were they they were aware that he'd risen to um, superintendent they were aware that he'd been chief inspector in charge of the ripper case but they didn't know anything more about that i think what's quite interesting is that um donald's eldest son donald donald neville uh, swanson the um that's Neville's grandfather. (laughs) It confused him with all the same names. He apparently was very interested in his father's career. And I've I've got a uh, a nice nice little document, which was something drawn up by by Donald Jr. and his brother, John, when they were kids playing at policemen and they'd gone and arrested. They're just writing in there that they'd gone and arrested a friend uh, and had a little little kangaroo caught. And I think, by all accounts, Donald Jr. was very interested in his father's career, but couldn't get anything out out of him about about it or the Ripper or anything because I'm sure if he had a done, Donald Jr. would have written all this stuff down and it would be passed down with the rest of the material. So there's there's nothing in writing at all about Swanson's thoughts on the Ripper or his later career apart from that, that marginalia, unfortunately.
0: So your book's kind of been a revelation to the family then?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it has. Um, I think probably the, the size of it, They they didn't know why it was taking so long to be fair, same as everybody else. But um, when, they, when they did receive it, I think it was, well, wow, there's, uh, there's much more here. But uh, of course, going back to Tom's kind comment at the beginning, it's it's not just Swanson's life and career. It gives background into everything else that was going on and, and why he worked on those cases. Um, I don't know whether they're going to be, I've not had feedback from them yet, other than to say, thanks for the copy, but whether they're going to find that too too much information and they just want to read you know the, the 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 sharp details of Donald's career remains to be seen, but um, you know they certainly seem very very pleased that um I've undertaken the work to tell the story. Um, I think Jim would have been delighted. I'm I'm very sad I didn't meet him. Um, as I, I don't
0: think Donald himself would have been very pleased at all. But that's that's by the bye. I want to move on to the seaside home identification. Which, okay. which is um now that we've gotten the the uh, provenance of the marginalia kind of out of the way uh let us talk about its content um which uh raised has no, it's notoriously raised a lot of questions um yeah. so basically the the marginalia um indicates that the suspect um was taken to his seaside home uh, and um, in which um, there was a witness to one of the murderers who refused to identify them because they were a Jew and 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 things uh, people familiar with the case will know all this Um, and for a long long time the seaside home has it's been suggested that it was the one at Hove yeah Um, and you bring up um, an alternative seaside home, which to me makes a lot of sense. Um, and so maybe you'd like to go into a little bit of that for us.
1: Well, I think, as you, as you say, Jim, that initially it's been assumed that it was the Metropolitan Police Convalescent Home at Hove, but that didn't open until March 1890. Uh, I've, I've never really gone into looking at the margin earlier, thinking, well, that was definitely the case. But I hadn't looked at any alternatives really until until coming to look at uh, look at this um solution, if you like, or the or the reasoning of Swanson marginalia when I was when I was researching for the book. I'd been aware for many years of of what I believe is the the home, and I'll talk about it more in a moment, through an article by Andy Ayliff for Reproduce magazine, and this probably was fifteen fifteen years ago, I'd imagine. Andy's not been involved in research for quite a while now. Um, so I started looking at this place. It's it's Morley. It's Morley House down near Dover. Um, and he, as I was researching, coincidentally, uh, I'd been sort of chatting with Neil Bell and I said I was looking in this route. I'd done quite a bit of the research, which appears in the book. And he said that, coincidentally, Sean Crundall, who, um, you know, is a researcher from the forums, and he's one of the co-authors of the New 8Z. Uh, he'd also been doing some some research on Morley House so um sean was very kind enough to sort of send over some of the newspaper cuttings and materials he had and interestingly his great grandfather sir william Crundell was the mayor of the area at time so there was some sort of inside information from the family which uh, i think gives some uh, um an interesting slant on it but basically i've i've always thought that the whole marginalia is talking about a city of london police investigation um you look at um the um, Swanson specifically writes a city CID of watch the uh watch the suspect night and day um and then again possibly coincidental but you've got the the city of london detectives henry cox and Sagar so talk about surveillance of a, of a suspect and i thought well if that was the case if the whole thing was city of london then you know how how we got this sort of complete problem of uh, a city suspect being watched by a city policeman and yet he's identified a, a met a met police home and two years after after the murders went when hove Hove Ho opened up so i started looking into morley house and and uh obviously andy aliff had said some time ago that there was a city of police uh, wing which opened up in the 1890s but when i sort of delved more into the research um firstly in the newspaper archives uh, and then i found that the um Morley House was was uh, uh, a scheme by a thing called the um, London Saturday Fund. I, I went to the London Metropolitan Archives and I, I looked through their materials, and there's lots of interesting things. Not least that the medical officer of Morley House was uh, Dr. Frederick Brown of the City of London Police. And I thought, well, that's 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 quite that's quite nice. You got a you got a city a city of London Police wing, and in the 1888 they had i think they paid for the use of four beds um at the home before they opened the wing um i thought well how how would uh, someone get from london to uh, to morley house um all the way down in dover because that's another thing that um some people have been puzzling over if it was hove why would you take someone out of out of london um whitechapel or or scotland yard or wherever um and go the difficult journey down to Hove. Well, Mor- Morley House, you could, you could literally jump on a on a train at Snow Hill in the city, which is right opposite the Snow Snow Hill Police Station, and you get a direct line all the all the way down to Martin Mill, um, which is a mile away from Morley House. And uh, I thought, well, that's that's quite convenient again, you know. But but then, what? How does someone? How does how does a a person get to go down to um, to Morley House? well they were all they were all workers who paid a subscription to to go and sort of spend a week uh, or two weeks at uh, at the seaside home uh, but before they could do so they had to be um, medically examined to see if they were sort of fitting for use of a bed um, and they were examined by Dr Frederick Brown so I just thought well the whole thing the whole thing's tiny and quite quite nicely really and the problem that Swanson writes in the marginalia about um sent to the seaside home with difficulty i'm i'm pretty sure that it was how do we how do we as the metropolitan police uh manage and i an, uh, uh, potential identification um at a city, uh, a city with the city of london police their uh colleagues on that occasion but obviously not always the case so i think Mor- morley house Again, there's no evidence that the identification took took place. there's no evidence that the identification actually took place. But if we take Swanson at his word in his marginalia, and there's no reason not to, I think Morley House um, is by far the the best fit for for what he's written.
0: Um, and and um, as you kind of indicated, and I think this is this is. Um, not emphasized enough really uh, and that is that the level of cooperation between the Met and the city police forces comes into play um, heavily when we discuss the identification at the Seaside Home Mm. and the subsequent surveillance of the Polish Jew suspect. Um, But I'd like to emphasize this to our listeners because I believe lately there's been a tendency to present um, this idea to the public that both of the police forces weren't really caring or cooperating or uh, putting forth any serious effort to even apprehend the murderer uh, based on the fact that they deemed the victims as prostitutes and expendable, and and we all know um, where that comes from. But there's um, a portion of your book where... You really highlight the cooperation between the city and Metropolitan Police Department and um, after the receipt of the From Hell letter and the Lust Kidney, um, in which um, the city and Metropolitan Police uh, Departments were working very closely together um, and having like, daily meetings with one another. Yeah. Um, and really merging their investigations into one investigation so under and, and probably in, in an, up until that time an unprecedented level of cooperation between the two forces so when you have um, Swanson being a Met police um, official commenting uh, solely on what um was an investigation headed by the the city of london police and it and it goes into who the suspect was right um because this apparently was uh an individual who might have been involved in who they believed was in the involved in the murder of Catherine eddowes yeah and and as we always kind of say you know um the general public thinks of this as the Whitechapel murder series, but the police approach this as as each individual murder in isolation kind of a thing. So yeah. so that that the uh, murder of Eddowes occurred in City of London Territory. Um, the suspect who was taken to the seaside home was maybe even possibly sighted around um, Mitre Square on the night of the murder. Something led to the suspicions falling on them, um, as it relates specifically to the murder of Catherine Eddowes. Now that, um, begs the question in, in the context of the marginalia. And when you say that the, uh, Swanson said that, um, the suspect was taken to the seaside home, um, with difficulty, um, And this is, uh, again, an argument um, that's been been made by some of the detractors of the marginalia. Um, The fact that the the marginalia says that uh, the suspect had been sent by us rather than taken by us, which you point out in your book, um, indicates um, to some that Swanson wasn't actually present during the Seaside Home investigation. So maybe he's looking at, he's hearing this second hand. And then from that, it's even suggested that Anderson's writings in the lighter side of my official life could have been based on information initially given to him by Swanson. So when Swanson was making the marginalia, he was expounding on Information that he himself had provided Anderson. Yeah. Um. So maybe uh, go a little little bit into that for us.
1: Well, I think I think that's it. that's entirely possible. Really, I mean, I know that John has got some strong opinions on, or some strong ideas, I should say, as to where Anderson got his information from, and, and build up that story. And, and perhaps John can go go over that in a moment. But I I I, I feel that. If if it was a city uh, identification and the city uh, some city detectives had taken the suspect and witness and arranged this uh, confrontation, um, which is effectively what it was at Morley House, uh, I'd, I, I I I feel that Swanson probably didn't didn't go. He wasn't there, and he's writing he was sent by us, and and the us is the Metropolitan Police. Um, so I I I've, I've, again. You'd, you'd think there'd be some sort of uh, uh, more detailed evidence in the marginalia if Swanson had been there. He might have been a little bit more descriptive as to where it was other than just a seaside home. But uh, again, it's all open to argument. But I, I I don't believe that Swanson was at the identification. But it may have been some, um, someone like Sagar or, or someone else from the city detectives um, who I think, I'm trying to find my notes, I think actually Sagar does say, yeah, we we... You see, we took uh, we took him for identification. Um, anyway, I think it was more a case that it was a city detectives taking the suspect rather than uh, Swanson or anybody else from the Met.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to jump in here for one second to talk about Morley House versus the um, you know Clarendon Villas and in,
1: in Hove, yeah. right?
4: Um, I, I mean, I think you you know you lay out a pretty plausible argument that it could have been Morley House, but I think the main import really. Um, of the distinction between the two, as far as i 'm concerned, is that uh, Clarendon Villas opened in March eighteen ninety I believe, uh, yeah. whereas Morley House was open at the time of the murders. Is that correct because I yeah, yeah. because I get the impression uh, from reading your book, and i don 't know that you ever explicitly state this, but it seems to me that uh, you're implying that the identification took place uh much earlier than i think most people um seem to think i mean paul beg i know believes uh, it, you know i think that it was closer to february 1891 uh, i had always had july 1890 in my mind but mm-hmm. it seems like your thinking was much closer to october or november
1: 1888 i think you know, i i do yeah i do i do actually state that as a, a suggestion rather than my theory shall we say. yeah um, yeah well i'm sure we're we when we um, look at the, my idea for a potential Kozminski, but my my feeling is that the identification took place in the middle of November 1888 um, if we go if we take Anderson as being correct that when he writes that Mary Kelly was the, the last murder I, I can't I can't really see how they would uh, um, send just trying to find the page. how they would send a suspect for identification um, and then what if that was uh, uh, after the Kelly murder, and then and then keep him under surveillance for two years before um, sending them sending them off to Coney Hatch, so sort of trying to find the page. Uh,
0: I mean that
4: that sounds that sounds very reasonable. I feel like in my mind I've been moving to an earlier date for the un- identification as well. Of course, that fits in with uh, what Henry Cox wrote, where you know he says that it was around the it was after the murder of Mary Kelly that we. You know, conducted this surveillance um, yeah. and um, you know of course there was all that stuff that apparently was going on in the middle of October which uh, you know in my mind has always plausibly um, referred to the you know quote Kosminski uh, suspect as well where they're talking about a foreigner and the police are very close to you know solving the case um,
1: well I think if you look at the, the, the mid-October house to house Search. I mean, I, it, you you would have thought that they'd have un, unearthed a number of suspects to uh, people of interest, rather than just one person, Kosminski. So I think it, I, I write in the book um, that I, I suspect that all the number of people became uh, of interest to the police in mid October, and they began they began observation, uh, more casual observation on these a uh, number of suspects, including Kozminsky. Uh, I think, fortunately, they they didn't crack down on anyone before mary kelly was killed in 9th of november um and then short i think by that point they'd they'd reduced the number of serious suspects to to a small number um and that's why i i I just wonder whether if in mid-november Minsky was sent down to morley house um and then obviously with no identification uh being possible he was watched by City CID around that time
4: right right right
1: I mean, it, do, it does
4: provide a very uh, good sort of explanation of why perhaps the murder ceased then, at that point, if he knew he was under surveillance, obviously. Um, you know, I, I know that you quoted um, what something from the Evening Telegraph from the middle of October, um, you know, where it says the police are um, satisfied uh, of bringing to justice the Whitechapel murder. and. Yeah, you know, I, I really think that this is probably re- related to the uh, all of the articles that came out in the mi- right around that time, the middle of October. Uh, I think are referring to the that Batty Street
1: suspect. Okay, okay. Uh,
4: I mean that that's always been my assumption because it was right around that time that it seemed clear to me that that became a really you know serious uh, suspect that they were looking into. Because he's, he's always described as a foreigner, um, you know, and he, um, you know, he, he came to the attention of the police, I believe, right around the beginning of o- October, but it was around, uh, I don't know, the 10th of October or something like that, that it began to be reported really extensively in the newspapers.
2: Well, I have yeah. a quick question, guys, if I can jump in here about um, the suspect and and when the police surveillance of him began. Um and and maybe this would also be a question for neil bell and paul beg in the next episode but how likely would it be that if the police put a suspect under surveillance that they would continue to surveil him for three years
4: well right um, so so that that's something that people have brought up numerous times and i think that i mean i mean adam even refers to this i think in the book or, or maybe he does yeah. i guess implies it anyway that i mean uh you know, it's always occurred to me that Kosminski was a suspect, but even among the police, I don't think they all agreed that he was, you know, the prime suspect. Anderson may have believed that; others may not have believed it. Um, you know, I think it's entirely possible that they had him under surveillance for a while, and then they just stopped. You know, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think that having an earlier date for the surveillance means that he was under mm-hmm. surveillance continually up through the time he was committed to the asylum. I mean, they may have had him under surveillance in November. And then, and then, not, you know, not found any new evidence or anything like that, and just kind of dropped it. I mean, what are they going to do? You know, I don't think, regar- regardless of what they believed, they knew about uh, Kosminski. Um, I-, I think there were other suspects as well, and there must have been doubts that you know maybe he wasn't the Ripper. So, yeah, yeah I think I
2: we we know there were doubts. I mean, you know, because McNaughton himself didn't think uh, Kosminski was the Ripper, or A- Aberline, or Reed, or so there wasn't a consensus about it, but um, what's interesting uh, and frustrating, of course, is that anytime time Kosminski is mentioned by name, uh, his first name or or initials are not provided. So that, of course, creates a, a debate uh, as to who the Kosminski suspect was. Right. The general consensus now is Aaron Kosminski. Of course, we all mm-hmm. understand that that is not. I wouldn't. Uh, consensus is going too far uh the perceived wisdom today among most people is that Aaron Kosminski was the suspect of course one of the things i like about adam's book is he went out on a limb by bucking that uh and uh, so i'm curious rob now that you've you wrote your book years ago john you've been studying this for years um are you guys, you two, John and Rob? Are you convinced Aaron Kosminski was Kosminski the suspect? Uh,
3: I, I've got, I've got, um, I've got some changing opinions. Uh, but one thing I wanted to add about the timing of the potential identification, and this may or may not be relevant to the actual timing of it, but but something that Robert Anderson had said, um. talking about the the murder of Alice McKenzie, when he says, I am here assuming the murder of Alice McKenzie um, to be by another hand, that could very well indicate that the identification took place after her murder. Otherwise, if the identification took place before her murder, Mm -hmm. he probably wouldn't have used the phrase, the, the, the word assuming. Um, so that makes me kind of skeptical. I mean, I really don't – I I don't have any kind of definitive thoughts about when this identification uh, took place, but I think that that may be a clue. And when it comes to um, surveilling a suspect over a long period of time, I mean, um, you know, 20th century, 21st century policing may be different, but it, like in the case of Gary Ridgway, who – even when the um, investigation dwindled down, when they you know the cut cut the uh, funding for the investigation, he was watched for a considerable amount of time, years after um, he was he, his house was searched and all that stuff too. So I think there's still some kind of um, leeway as far as trying to figure out when this identification took place and um but on the- would
0: it have been um in the case of kosminski would it have been round the clock surveillance that, to such an extent that it prevented him f- from perpetrating another murder um be- you know because with uh, cox's um uh, description you know uh, of the the surveillance i mean it seems to be a pretty tight in time frame, in, in my opinion. Um, if, hypothetically, um, the seaside <clears throat> home confrontation occurred after the murder of Mary Kelly um, uh, uh, with a suspect from the Eddowes murder, and then there was round the clock surveillance... Um, The problem, as it's as has been alluded to in the same problem, Martin Fido had with naming Aaron Kosminski as the Kosminski is, is that um, it wasn't until 1890 that Kosminski was admitted to Mile and Old Town. And and then he was discharged back into the care of his brother and then stayed free for another seven months Bef- until february of ninety one when he wasn't put into colony hatch and and then leaves den and, and you know and went on, went on to spend the rest of his life and locked up in an asylum so so it's kind of like um with a murderer with a serial killer of the type that Jack the Ripper probably was i I do wonder if it's plausible that the City of London Police would have expended the resources to do that kind of round-the-clock surveillance that mm. would have actually prevented another murder for almost two years after the Miller's Court murder.
3: I, I have some speculative thoughts about that as well because Cox mentions being um, having his conducting surveillance for three months after the murder of, well, he said the last murder, or Mary Jane Kelly, um, which would put it close to the March of 1889 um, quote by McNaughton in his memorandum about being Kuzminski, being um, put in an asylum. So, and and also I think it was Sager that um, said that from time to time, was put into a, a a private asylum by his friends or or something along those lines. Now you could actually because th- th- there has to be some sense that some even though we can't make sense of any of these events, you know, whether chronologically or name wise or anything like that, um, there has to be some truth in what all of these people were saying. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, you could say, well, okay, Cox was was right about um, uh, conducting surveillance for three months after um, the, the, the last murder. And McNaughton could have been, because we we all assume that he was making a mistake about Kuzminski, if he's referring to Aaron, Aaron Kuzminski being placed in an asylum in, in uh, March of 1889. Mm-hmm. But um, regardless of whether it was um, Aaron Kosminski or a different Um uh, Theoretically, they could have conduct, Cox could have conducted his sur- surveillance for three months. Um, the suspect could have been placed in an asylum. One of the from time to time in March of eighteen eighty nine, the police wouldn't have had to keep round the clock surveillance if they knew where he was. And then there could have actually been several different instances where this suspect was washed had they kept tabs on him now i'm not i'm not trying to you know pigeonhole aaron Kozminski into all this mm-hmm. but it's just there could be in, in instances where we assume there are mistakes they may not be mistakes um and in instances where we just kind of jump to conclusions we may need to step back and kind of go well you know it, because it's it is definitely frustrating when you have these things together, and you, you try to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and it feels like you're actually there's like three different puzzles together, mm-hmm. and you got a piece that doesn 't fit here and a piece that doesn't fit here, but maybe these puzzles are all all related to one another. We just have to figure out which right. pieces belong yeah. with which puzzle oh well, yeah, because yeah.
0: if the um if the surveillance did last for three months after the miller's court murder, then that eliminates David Cohen. Yep. Um, as a suspect, since he was <clears throat> put away in December of eighty eight, yep. um, so yeah. So, <laughs>
4: yeah, I think I think it's a really. I'm glad you brought that up, um, John, because I, it, it's a really good point about the three months. Uh, you know, sort of coinciding with that March eighteen eighty nine date, and um, you know, I've always thought it's enti- entirely possible that Kosminski could have been put into a private asylum. Of course, there's never been any. Uh, n- nobody's ever discovered any evidence of that, but um, I believe and I I could be misremembering, but wasn't there a, didn't the uh, police draw down sort of the funding and the resources uh, uh, put towards the Ripper case yeah. around 1889 as well?
3: Yeah, roughly the same time, and of course that could, you know, logically you could say that could come down to finances, you know, there hadn't been any murders in three months, and um, there was obviously a, a Um, strain on resources I mean as you know you could take the uh, Gary Ridgway case as an example with that too Um, by the time Gary Ridgway was actually arrested um, uh, uh, and charged with these murders there was like one person left on the investigation so you can see why um, uh, financial concerns would have made sense but you have to be open minded that maybe okay we know where this guy is. Uh, we're just going to wait it out. If he ever gets out, great. You know, we'll watch him again. If he doesn't get out, we won't. So, um, yeah. There, there's a. I think. I think this this kind of um, this kind of talk. It just it opens up more doors. It doesn't get us any closer, but it. it, it you know, it's 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 it kind of keeps it um, keeps us from forming an opinion and treating it as fact you know
1: sorry to jump in I was going to say that's exactly right because you can you know you can move the goalpost entirely I mean if you look at Henry Cox talking about three-month surveillance um, he that doesn't mean he started after the uh, mid November which is what I'm suggesting is the potential identification he could have been part of the surveillance into the uh, the suspects as as early as uh, end of uh, October that i that i mentioned so he was still part of the surveillance team and the kosminski that was identified and returned to the streets it could have just been picking him up again uh, continuing his, his existing surveillance at that point
2: guys is it possible that cox personally participated for three months but that the surveillance ran longer and he was only involved for three months of say a six or an eight month surveillance
4: Seems anything is possible. Yeah, <laughs> I mean,
0: but yeah, like what Adam said, you know, um, if if the three months began um, when uh, when quote unquote Kozminski was identified as a suspect immediately after the double event, then that would put David Cohen in the frame um, yeah. again. So. Um, but, well, Can I
2: ask you a question about David Cohen? You guys would, would have researched this more than I, I would. I got the impression reading Martin's book, and I write about this in Ripper Confidential. Um, Martin may, went to great lengths to disregard the Goulston Street graffito, and, and I wondered if that wasn't because David Cohen wasn't capable of having written it. Um and this is significant because Anderson's suspect was clearly capable of. And I'm not arguing the Ripper wrote the graffiti. That's, that's irrelevant. The point is, Anderson believed the Ripper, wrote, you know, his suspect wrote that chalk writing. So that means whoever Anderson's suspect was would have been able of capable of that handwriting. Might have logically had chalk on him, and would have had the the motivation to have written it. And, and to me, that's a litmus test for identifying Anderson's suspect as whoever the suspect was had to have had the capability of writing it. So I was wondering if you guys could chime in on that and talk about David Cohen and Aaron Kosminski and their ability to have written that message.
3: Well, I, I think not to not to be hogging the mic or anything – but going, going, just briefly, going back to the the surveillance that may have started in October, it would have reflected pretty poorly on um, watching the suspect day and night, and having another murder, um, meaning Mary Kelly, have having taken place. Right. So it would be, it, it would be, it would reflect pretty poorly on the police as far as that. If if in fact that by day and night surveillance happened and then mary kelly was murdered but um uh, my opinion as far as the the cohen kuzminski thing i was up until up until rob started researching aaron kuzminski um, who i'd written off previously not just because of uh, well fido to begin with but um david cohen was always my you know my preferred suspect and that was you know simplifying my thoughts saying okay the died shortly after fits perfectly you know you can you can disregard the uh, return to his brother's house in Whitechapel and all of that stuff um, David Cohen was demonstrably insane um, he died shortly after he was r- arrested as a lunatic uh, wandering at large so I mean to me that for for a long long time um, I was fairly convinced that that was the um that was Anderson's suspect, and that was Jack the Ripper. Now, you know, Rob completely turned that upside down for me, so I've been um, definitely in the Aaron Kozminski camp,
2: but now... How, how did he do that? How? What did Rob write or say that changed your mind? Oh, it, everything. I, I, the, the entirety of his book. I mean, everything about...
3: Um, not just, um, a, you know, Aaron Kuzminski's um, past or potential diagnoses or, or anything like that. Um, the tying in with the Batty Street um, laundry incident, um, it was just, it was a, a, a cumulative kind of thing that made me think, and the timelines as well, as far as um, identification and that stuff goes. Now, reading Adam's book, it's kind of, brought david cohen to me back into the frame um but now i feel i feel as lost as i've ever been because <laughs> be, be, because i still i still i'm open-minded to the to the possibility that there was an alternative Kazminsky, although you would have to you would have to line up everything that swanson said in his marginalia and have that fit and can you have that fit with? I mean, if you're if you're taking his word, which you know, there's no reason at this point not to. Um, so, uh, other than the died shortly afterwards, um, everything seems to fit Aaron Kazminski like a glove. Now, of course, died shortly afterwards is no small matter, um, because obviously that couldn't have been further from the truth. So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of I. I'm kind of back to square one. I mean, my, my belief still is that, that whoever Anderson suspect was, was the murderer, but the details now are as murky to me or, or the conclusions are as murky to me as, as, as ever. So I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to sit back and let you guys, Let you guys find find these um, things out, and I'll be a commentator like I should be. Well, well,
2: John, that brings me back to my my question. Could David Cohen have uh, taken the chalk and written in a good school by hand the message in Goulston Street?
3: Well, well, just because his records don't indicate that he could speak English— I mean, if we knew that he couldn't, yes, I think that that would – if you want to tie – if you believe that the graffiti was written by their murderer, then um, it would be difficult um, to reconcile that with David Cohen if, in fact, that – if we believe that he he didn't speak English. Whereas Aaron, Aaron Kuzminski obviously did speak English. Um, but
2: I, I'm still – you know, I – I, I'd well, the off. point I was making wasn't that the Ripper wrote the the graffiti. It was that Anderson has written that the murderer did write it, and yeah. so that's his belief. So, therefore, in my mind, and maybe I'm mistaken, I I feel that Anderson knew that his suspect was capable of writing that message. Otherwise, he would have uh, he would have disregarded the the graffiti. I think. I, but, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right about that. Well, yeah.
1: this I, I I'd say in answer to that, Tom, that it's one of the, one of the things um, levelled against Ari Kosminski was the eating food out of the gutter and, and, and that sort of thing. Is that, that that's nobody knows what he was like in 1888, and the same could be said for David Cohen. I know it's much closer to the the, um, the double event and, and the Gorson Street Graffito, but uh, Cohen apparently couldn't speak English and was demented when he was taken in the uh, beginning of December. But what was he like two months earlier? He, you know, he could, could well have been capable of. of uh, doing the right in. Yeah, I think Aaron
2: Kosminski could have. I'm I believe that Aaron Kosminski uh could speak and write English well, was an uh, intelligent person based on what I've read about him in Rob's and, uh, and John's book. But, you know, David Cohen I get the impression that um he he doesn't make a a, a good suspect. His timeline fits, but he doesn't fit into the frame of Anderson's suspect. That's my opinion. And I wonder if we're not looking for uh, a third person um, who was, for some reason, either a, legally a Kosminski but went by another name, or yeah. went yeah. by another name but was known as Kosminski. Who was? And also, an Aaron Kosminski at 23 strikes me as too young. Whoever the Ripper was, I think he. I just it strikes me as too young. I think we're looking for someone in their thirties, but uh, you know, some there's got to be a better fit out there. I would think that fits everything. And I know it's unreasonable to expect Swanson and Anderson to have and Cox and everyone else to have been a hundred percent on point with all their information. But Swanson, when still a relatively young man, what was it, eighteen ninety four, eighteen ninety five, said the Ripper. Was or the suspect that might have been the Ripper was already dead in an asylum. This
1: man who's now dead, yeah. I don't think he yeah, said he was that, in an that asylum. To me, but...
2: that, that resonates. This yeah. isn't some old guy, you know, making up stuff. Uh, whoever Anderson's and Swanson's suspect was, was dead by then. Um I mean, that's that's a pretty big hurdle to overcome for the argument of Aaron Kosminski, in my opinion.
0: And I, but- I want um, Adam to be given an opportunity, because uh, we're kind of beating around the bush of, of the issue, I think, as far as what you present in your book. I don't want to create the impression that you're, you you um, say it's David Cohen, um, because you don't. You give other alternatives um, and, and basically say... Uh, what Tom had just said that there is a, a possibility that there is a third kosminski or, you know, yeah. Some, yeah. Uh, so why don't you um, clarify your stance on Aaron Kosminski, David Cohen, or maybe a relative of Martin Kozminski who has a uh, association with one of the MITRE square witnesses. Well, and I, I think that's, uh, I should, I should say
1: that um, I'm not, I'm not, uh, anti-Aaron Kosminski, if Rob or John or anyone else came up with some uh, evidence or some research which which uh, firmly pointed the finger at Aaron, and then I'd, I'd be as happy as anybody. Um, what I've tried to do in, in my research in my book is to follow Swanson's, um, obviously his notes in the marginalia, but also his thought processes and the way that he'd write a report, um, you know, officially, but in this case, unofficially. And I just I just can't believe that he would be so... Uh, inaccurate on on so many things that that he's put in the marginalia. You know, I think I think as uh, John said, mostly everything would fit apart from the died suit. Shortly afterwards, can be can be explained, which is fine. But I, I just can't believe that Swanson writing something for his own private use in a private book that no one uh is ever going to see, and in fact didn't see for all them years, he's gonna he's gonna deliberately. Uh, write something which is incorrect or, or or make a mistake as i said in the book at the earliest uh he was going to be 55 years old at the time he wrote that and he was still mentally very sharp right up to his death so again not an old man or an old man's memory um and and going from the going from the starting point that swanson was correct with what he's written i just feel that i have to i have to exclude aaron kuzminski from that so i've just uh explored other avenues david Cohen uh, uh, again is one and in in the book i I suggest a um a way that David Cohen could have been um the kozminsky that was being written about and watched by Cox. i'm not saying that definitely did happen, but it it could have it could be um a way for David Cohen to have been the ripper um i'm I'm personally very interested in the Martin kozminsky family who was um his naturalization papers were were supported by joseph heim levy the mitre square witness um and it's interesting that i think generally everybody knows that but you need to you know a lot of people don't realize it's not just one person that supports an application there's usually four or five uh businessmen that are known to the applicant so it's you know it, it's it's not as though i think they were especially close so i thought for a long time after i read paul's paul begs the facts in 1888 that Martin Kuzminski was a really good uh, suspect for the Ripper because of that, but when I looked into it for myself and realised that Joseph Hyam Levy was one of five, he obviously knew Martin Kuzminski, but did he? You know, did he know any other family members? And of course, there's a brother that we do know, Samuel Kuzminski, who also came over from Poland and went through the naturalisation process um, in 1887. Now, of course, we don't know whether they're, they're the only two Kazminski brothers is there another one which came over after Samuel in time for eighteen eighty eight not recorded anywhere didn't go through the naturalization papers, so he wouldn't be recorded in in, in any census returns or anything like that um could well have been in the air and of course, Joseph Hyam levy may have been aware of the family and recognized that potentially unnamed um third brother in mike square so that that's a that's a a line of inquiry I'm, I'm still looking into i couldn't delay publishing the book any further but i'm still looking into that but i think one thing that i do i do include in and i'm very interested in is um samuel kuzminski's naturalization papers they the way that they worked the system worked is that when the application went in uh, the local a local uh, policeman usually from the detective department would go and um Sort of investigate the background and the application, and then if all was okay, they'd forward it onto the Home Office for approval. In the case of Samuel Kuzminsky, his, his papers were uh, his application, rather, was um, looked into by Sergeant James Nan, who was in N Division, which is North London, uh, local to where Samuel lived, um, and it, it's just and he passed it for um, approval to the Home Office. But what's very interesting is that then, then in October around the time of the house-to-house search, was seconded to Whitechapel to help the investigation. Um, and we don't know it much more about uh, his involvement in that. He appears in a couple of police orders and and reports minor involvement. But afterwards, he was presented uh, an inscribed pipe, um, James Nen, um, Six Brother Officers, Whitechapel Murders, 1888. And there's no explanation to that. And on the surface, you'd think, well, James, James Nen didn't do very much at all with the Whitechapel murders. So what What warranted him getting this inscribed memento of, of his work on the murders? And who were the the other six officers? And I just think, well, taking that into account, you know, something he did something special or something noteworthy in the investigation. He was involved with a Kuzminski family. We've got uh, Samuel Kuzminski's brother, Martin, was known to a, a witness. I just wonder if there is a third... Other that we don't know about, who could well be the Kosminski that, that we're all looking for.
2: Hmm. Well, that that brings up, uh, you know, the Nern stuff in your book was extremely interesting. That was new to me. Again, I don't follow all the Kosminski threads on the boards, hmm. and maybe that's an well, old. Well, that, that was new, story, that's but... why. Okay, well, good. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was very intriguing. Um, and, uh, you know, Nern, you know, he, he worked with Inspector Moore is that right and when did yeah, he yeah was it 89 um that he was really involved in the ripper case could that kind of point maybe to when the suspect uh summer of 89 when he was put under surveillance i mean is that a possible indicator
1: well in my my when i spoke with uh, had a long chat with neil bell who uh, who um, you know is uh probably the the police authority on on the investigation of the case and we we spoke about when no would have come over and and he uh nil said that it was at the time of the house to house in october eighteen eighty eight um so again looking looking at take taking that as as the starting point was was something uncovered in the house to house that that led well this is a family that that we've got some documents on uh that no had some information on um I don't I'm not aware of any of the involvement in the summer of eighteen
2: eighty nine. Well, it's just uh you know, after reading your book, um, I was like, I'm gonna look this up and there's a press report on uh Nern talking about how along with Inspector Moore they headed up a large body of detectives in Whitechapel um okay. engaged in the Ripper and talked about the, the Ripper had become very reckless. Um and that they were, you know, really keeping a close eye. I mean, it didn't go into great detail, uh, but it said something, um, you know, just that the, that the Ripper was being reckless and they were keeping a close eye on it. And I thought the timing was interesting. August of 89, I don't know if maybe that was after the the surveillance of a particular suspect during yeah. or... It, maybe that was an indicator because you brought Nern into this, and all of a sudden now, it, w- I think there's ne- there's going to be more research into him because there's something interesting there with that.
1: Yeah,
4: yeah, agreed. I just wanted to touch briefly on um, on the died shortly afterwards. Um, I mean, I kind of echo what John said. Really, I mean as far as as far as I can tell, that's really the only known inaccuracy in the swanson marginalia unless i'm missing something um but um
1: an in, in inaccuracy rob did you say but potential inaccuracy i think you meant to say <laughs> uh, yeah
4: well it's, if, we're, if, if we're talking about aaron kosminski i guess that's what i meant to yeah. say yeah um and uh i don't know if somebody mentioned this but was there an earlier reference to him dying because by swanson because uh, I mean, I know McNaughton, for example, in 1894 uh, said that he believed he was still in the asylum, which would indicate that he wasn't. Yeah,
1: dead. yeah. He wasn't oh, dead, at least
4: by 1894. So that doesn't really fit with what Swanson said, assuming that they're talking about the same person.
3: That, I, I just would like to jump in for one second about that. And something that occurred to me very recently was it was in the initial draft of the mcnaughton memorandum when where mcnaughton says that um he was detained about march of 1889 and in parentheses says and i believe still is and i think that parenthesis that i believe still is did not make it into the final draft of the mcnaughton memorandum so you could look at that a couple of different ways too you could look at that as Um, When he said, I believe still is writing in 1894 that he was mistaken and that the suspect had died, or you could be a little more conspiratorial about it and say, well, he took that part out because he didn't want to make it known that this suspect was still alive and still accessible to some to some extent. So Indeed, I think that yeah. that may yeah. not be insig- as insignificant that that part of the McNaughton Memorandum was was left out in the in the official draft of it. No, I, but I think McNaughton
2: was MacNaughton was horribly underinformed, wouldn't you say? Um, unless you believe that he everything he wrote was a riddle, like Hainsworth has suggested. McNaughton was, uh, you know, thought. The suspect Cutbush was related to and, uh, the officer Cutbush when apparently he was not. Um, that Montague John Druitt was a, a doctor 10 years older than he was and committed mm-hmm. suicide right after killing murder. So, you know, you take all that and then you read what he has to say about Kosminski. I've personally wondered if he doesn't quote unquote exonerate Kosminski because, in his mind, the Ripper had to be a doctor. And if you were anything less than that, you weren't a viable suspect. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, having said that, then the fact that he can exonerate him so lightly might suggest there wasn't like necessarily a lot of evidence against you know whoever this Kozminski was. I, mean,
4: I think one thing I just want to throw in here, just as food for thought. Um, I can't remember. It's in Fark I don't know how you pronounce this. Farkerson, Who was the first one who?
2: Uh, commented well, the, the on the west knowledge. of england mp An mp right.
4: yeah yeah and i think that that i think that the first uh comment on that happened within days of aaron kosminski's committal to colney hatch which has always struck okay. me as uh, has always struck me as a kind of a strange coincidence and incidentally i thought that that was where john was going with that whole uh conspiracy thing uh you know i don't know that we don't want to open up that can of worms here but that that's something that's kind of played in the back of my mind for a while is that you know it it, it would have been in the police's interest to to um to have some kind of story that they could tell that w- that they could tell the public whenever you know something came up um that would cause a panic. They could just say, look, the guy's dead. You know, We have proof that he's well, dead. Like
1: that. Absolutely. Well, that's exactly what Swanson did to the Pall Mall Gazette reporter in 1895, um, where they were talk, talking about Granger, I think it was. And, and Swanson's turned around and said, oh, it's a, it was a work of a man who's now dead. It could have been, but as you said, it could easily right. have been a, let's stop you in your tracks. Don't, there's no point talking about Granger because the real perpetrator is long, long dead and we've known all about it.
4: Yeah, there's numerous uh references to to that, uh, you know, when the police are sort of asked for a uh a comment or some kind of comment to the press on some murder that has taken place. Um there was the one uh there was another one someone who a woman who was murdered in a tr- in a train car. I can't remember the case exactly, and the police said a very similar type of thing. They said it was, you know, the ri- it's not the Ripper because he's been dead,
2: you know. But then it's why a- weren't the city police in on it because uh it seems to be Met Men who were and only very few Met Men who were saying the Ripper is now dead. Um, yeah, why weren't well, this
4: Well, I mean think 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 that through. You know, if if what we if what you're saying is that there's actually some kind of cover story, you'd want as few people to know the truth as possible. Mm-hmm. The more people that know, the less the less it's gonna work.
2: But then it's a bad cover story, isn't it? <laughs>
4: Okay. No, I mean it's a it's it's a good cover story if it's a, if it's as vague as possible. It's, my it's,
3: yeah, it's it's kept us from figuring it out. But then, uh, by
2: contrast, <laughs> if 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 it is just a cover story and the Ripper was not really dead, we were just saying that. Then that also means the Ripper wasn't necessarily anyone in an asylum. That could be part of the cover story too, and that could work against the whole Kosminski theory. You know, but if the Ripper was in an asylum, why not just leave it at that? The Ripper is caged in an asylum. I understand why you say he's dead so they don't go looking for him. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's I mean,
4: say- saying he's dead does keep people from going and looking for him in the asylum. If you say he's caged <laughs> in an asylum right now... People are going to be like, where? Which asylum? You know. But then you could just he. say yeah. he's
2: dead. Why even mention the asylum? You know, he was putting a, he, And I think didn't Swanson actually name a specific asylum in 1895 to where I mean, they could they could go look at the records? Okay, yes. who died between 1888 and now for, in this asylum? Who could be the suspect? Well, I, I, I
4: think I think to follow this thread through, you know, I mean, it's clear that there had been. Uh, There'd been reports and rumors and things like that about the ripper being in an asylum, so you know it's not like you can uh put the lid on that story after it was already out there, so they, yeah, they but made, he named
2: uh, a specific asylum so I, that I, arc, that's not vague i don't I don't think Swanson
3: even mentioned the, asylum anywhere no, other than the marginalia
2: no, they, oh no, they, that's possible i'm again, yeah, my i th- i not I'm there's pretty there's sure like,
3: pretty sure that article he just said he he was um
1: believed yeah. to be
3: uh, par- a man par- believed paraphrased to be yeah. yes paraphrased as being you know believing it's a man that's now dead i don't yeah i don't i don't i'm not aware of any instance where swanson mentions an asylum at all uh, except no. for the marginalia no.
1: maybe I well, was he doesn't but else then well i was just going to say tom that sagar whose report uh, uh interviewed on his retirement in 1905 and he mentions in a couple of our, uh interviews that uh the, the the perpetrator was, was placed in asylum. We couldn't identify him. So he was put in asylum and the atrocities came to an end. So maybe, maybe you're thinking of Sagar.
2: Possibly. Yeah, that's, but uh, we've talked about the, the seaside home identification, where it was. Um, we've talked about when it might've happened, but now my, I have a question for Rob, um, John and Adam individually. Um, And that is, who do you individually believe was the Seaside home witness? Uh, Rob.
4: I have always said that I'm pretty ambivalent on this uh, question, um, because I could go different ways. Uh, I mean, I've always leaned towards, uh, is it Lowend or Lavenda? I don't know how you pronounce it. I'd say Lewendy,
2: but it could be Lavendi.
4: Okay, good enough. So I would say either that guy or Schwartz. But, you know, I, I can't really say one way or the other.
2: Okay, and John.
3: Well, uh, and this is obviously just going on the uh, the people who have been mentioned, the names that we know. So, I mean, th- th- there's probably a vast pool of potential um, witnesses. But if you, the, the one thing that makes me kind of um, gravitate towards Israel Schwartz um, is the only person who ever had a good. View of the murderer, and Schwartz is the only one that actually was basically face to face. If you if you mm. want to talk about um, um, you know specific distances, you know from one side of street to one side of Burner Street to the other is actually quite a bit um, different than one side of uh, was it Duke Street to the other, and. It was a, it was a potentially a face to face thing, and to me, if that if Schwartz didn't appear at the inquest officially, which which it appears that he didn't, um, it would seem to emphasize his his potential importance as a witness. But again, I have to qualify that by saying that it's it's just from. The names that we know of, I mean, Lavenda, I, I am very suspicious that he was used in any other IDs, yeah. as has suggested as far as Thomas Sadler, as, as far as Granger goes. The, these accounts are only from um, a, a, a very small um, amount of newspaper reports And so you have to start questioning, you know, where they got their information about an ID and why, if it was a, if it was an ID that that these newspapers would would get a report. But yeah, I guess uh, short story long, um, I I would lean towards Schwartz as being a better witness overall than Lavenda. But if it's a city witness, then you have to look at Lavenda. You have to give the edge to him. So I, I would give the slight edge, if I was going to be a, a bet on it, I would say, of the name names, uh, I would favor Schwartz at this, at this point anyway.
2: Okay, and Adam, what, what's
3: oh, your that answer?
1: Was, oh, well, until, I, until I heard John's answer, I had a pretty firm idea in my mind. <laughs> um, no, I, I think because of my interest in the Martin Kuzminski, Samuel Kuzminski family, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I'm still researching on the lines of Joseph Hyam Levy, as uh, knowing knowing the family and you know his reporting, we don't know how much, but reporting, being in the press as being uh, evasive and and uh, assuming a knowing air, I think the phrase was. I think he's he's there's definitely more to what he saw than than he told the uh, the reporters. So I'd I'd go I'd go along with him at the moment. Well then, Adam, yeah. I have a
2: question for you regarding if if Levy were the witness. Um, and we're going off, you know, like what Swanson's talking about in his marginalia. Yep. It appears that only when confronted with the suspect did he realize, and he saw him, did he realize he was a Jew.
1: Yep. Um, how do you explain that? that? Well, I can't explain that. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, knew, yeah. I knew I knew that question was going to come along when uh, yeah, Jonathan that. first asked me, but you know that 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 can't that can't be explained because you know the whole premise of. Um, martin Kosminski and that family being known to uh levy but he would have known he, he would have known the uh, the background of the family so it doesn't it doesn't uh tie in with that and of course swanson did did write that in the marginalia and anderson i, I believe wrote that he was a fellow jew in the blackwoods version of the yeah, when um, he learned book, so yeah yeah when he yeah. learned
3: he was a fellow jew so, if, the, if, the, but if he would have
1: already known yeah indeed
2: yeah yeah, so when he, it comes to Schwartz um, and I've written a ton about Schwartz and all of that kind of stuff. Um one of the things that struck me about him now if you put it in terms of what Swanson's talking about, Schwartz would make sense. First he's Jewish. Uh second of all he would not he may not have had a clue that broad shoulder man was Jewish because he was yelling out a Jewish epithet. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it might have been shocked to find that out upon Coming, you know, confronting him. Um, Having said that, the problems with Schwartz as the witness are he disappears completely from the written record on November first of eighteen eighty-eight. He just disappears. Aberline, who who interviewed Schwartz, who knew him, who advanced him as a witness, is later recorded as uh, pretty much dismissing him. Aberline talks about um, witnesses who only saw him from the back, which would be you know, Mrs. Long, uh, Joseph Lewindy, and James Brown, uh, he, and in saying that he is dismissing, something happened, in my opinion, with Schwartz that made them go, this guy, I don't think we can trust him as a witness, I, and I do believe he saw what he saw, uh, based on the timeline that I provide in Rupert Confidential, but that makes me doubt that he was a, a witness, and, but the big thing for me is that, uh, comments made by Smith, um, Uh, Sir Henry Smith, chief constable of the city police, acting commissioner in 1888. Uh, When he was writing his memoirs, he read Anderson's uh, uh, published memoirs in Blackwood's magazine prior to his book coming out. But he read the Blackwood's magazine and he was angry about and he reacted. It's almost like we got to read an an Internet post from Smith because he was writing (laughs) live and he was pissed off. Now, here's the thing to me, this uh, Smith's comments and what he didn't say prove the seaside event happened, because Smith would have known about it. Um, if if it had happened without Smith's knowledge, Smith would have said in there, this never happened, or I would have known about it. But he didn't. He no, He doesn't argue that the event occurred. What he does do is he takes issue with Anderson on how he says, oh, the person would have been protected by his own people. He sees this as a A slur against the Jews, and he defends the Jewish population, saying they were better than the Gentile population. But most importantly, he then segues into discussing one witness, and that is Joseph Lewendy, who he characterized as an honest witness, an intelligent witness, but then says he didn't, he didn't see the guy well enough to make an ID. And to me, that is him under, um, you know, he's, he's, he's striking a, a, a curveball at Anderson by saying, yes, what you described happened, but your witness was not up to snuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read that as reading between the lines, he is telling us who the witness was. What well, that, well that,
4: that's, that's entirely in keeping with my interpretation of uh, w- what was written about the identification at all. Because, I mean, uh, it's much more plausible to me, and Adam says this in the book as well, that the, the witness may very well have declined to testify just because they were not certain, you know, not, not, not very certain of their identification. Um, and knowing the repercussions that may have had in the Jewish community... Um, as well. I, I wanted to just throw in one other thing. I, w- I was really struck in reading Adam's book about this city PC witness, as well, yes. supposedly from Mitre Square. Uh, I don't know if it's, I mean, I get the impression that you put some weight in that. And, and I think reading your book again made me reconsider it and the whole, you know, chasing the suspect down Stony Lane and all that type of stuff. I mean, it, rereading that, it seems very plausible to me. And
1: it, it would be surprising if there was not some. Something to that. you going to have to remind me what I said about Stony Lane there. was it? was it the Sagar? Um, yeah, I think, I think oh, it's that the was Sager. Rob, not, not me. But go ahead. Oh, sorry, Rob. Sorry. I,
4: I, think, the, it's uh, a, I think it's the Sagar. Um, I believe it was Sagar who was talking about, yeah, how he saw, a, he, he said he saw a, a, a foreigner, a well-known man of Jewish appearance. That's how he put it, which is interesting. Coming out of the square, yeah, uh, and then uh, you know a few minutes later fell over the body and blew his whistle. I don't, now I think he gets confused and says that was the murder of Mary Kelly, but it's clearly that it's uh, not because then he refers to the, uh, you know, he refers to the
1: the bloody uh, murder square. But right. I, I believe I believe he's he's used the, the name Mary Kelly because that's the name that Eddowes gave at Bishopsgate right. Police Station. So. Let's see if I can find that bit. But it was McNaughton
2: yeah. who said the city PC. Uh, no one saw the Ripper except possibly the city PC. Um, mm. Yeah, was McNaughton who said that, and then he—I think that was in his original, and then it—it it, it got struck, if I'm not mistaken. That's um, right. But uh, that is, and I—I I thought maybe he was confusing, um, like PC Thompson in a later case, who discovered a victim and and heard the the killer running away. So, uh, but if you look at another important Swanson document that hasn't come up yet in our conversation, and my personal favorite, is his October 19th report, uh, which survives and has a lot of commentary from other people. And basically, they're laying out there that Joseph Lewindy was the person most likely. So to me, this argues against the idea that Levy saw a lot more than they wanted the press to know. Because this is an inter police report, and it's and it's saying Lewindi got a look at the killer. Lewindi's our guy, and then it says, "Yeah, but uh, he saw. You know, he's the most likely to have seen the killer, but he didn't get a good view of him." Um, and that promotes him to me in my mind as being the the witness uh but it also where's the city pc why isn't that this is october 19th that this report was compiled um yeah. there should have been some debate about well the city pc actually got the best look and yeah. it's
1: just not yeah. in there well it's interesting that the city pc i know there's been some debate on the boards that potentially it it was um house when he was doing his uh ran off run off to um Golson Street. Potentially, he was a city PC. Obviously, wrong rank, but I think McNaughton actually writes that the city PC was on his beat around Mitre Square, so it wouldn't that wouldn't been the case.
2: Um, could he could he have meant city police witness and not city PC? There could have been a confusion there.
1: Well, quite quite possibly. But as I say, the actual the actual phrasing is the city PC who was on a beat near Mitre True. Square, so it would have been Harvey or uh, Watkins. You'd have thought.
2: Yeah, it's just McNaughton seemed to like to he – he would hear things, and he would write them down as fact, it seems like, a lot of times. Um, but that is cur- – there are other mentions of a city PC witness in there. So it is curious. Is that – I mean, based on your guys' gut instinct, was there a city police witness? I have no idea.
1: <laughs> Very diplomatic. I – well, again, I have no idea either.
4: <laughs> I have another question I just want to throw in here quickly, and this may be a quick answer. Um, I'm just curious, Adam, why did you choose
1: to refer to Kate Eddowes as Kate Conway? Well, uh, it's interesting because um, Jonathan was asking me this on, on Facebook a couple of days ago. When, when I decided to tackle the um, the Ripper investigation, well, in fact most of the cases in the book, which we won't go into tonight, um, but I, I wanted to present uh, each case as it, as it happened if you like, for the reader, and um, I think not. Kate Conway obviously was known around Spitalfields by by that name. It wasn't until a daughter came forward to identify the body that her, her true name of Catherine Eddowes became known, so, you know, while she was alive and, and, and going into the casual ward and going to pawn the boots, she was Kate Conway, so I thought it was quite, it was quite important to do that, and, and similarly, when they were when they found Annie Chapman in Hanbury Street, nobody knew who she was. She was identified as Annie Siffy. So again, I wanted to give that, that idea of, of how things were in the early part of the investigation because I'm sure that 99% of people picking up the book are going to be familiar with the Ripper investigation and they're going to be expecting, well, I know all about Annie Chapman, but I wanted to present it in such a way that this is actually how it happened rather than how we know it 135 years later. But Elizabeth
2: Stride went by Liz and Elizabeth with a Z, and you you had her in there with her original well, Swedish star. Well, that's stone. true. I
1: have I her have from the, um, the, the Swedish uh, origins, yeah, that's correct. But, um, you know, a, again, I mean, that doesn't follow the way through, although I've presented Kate Conway and Annie Siffy that way. Obviously, Frances Coles, I think I, I name before she's murdered. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was a reason for, the, for that particular um, instance and, and um, I say, with Annie
2: and I have a question for you, and this will probably not make the cut, but I have got to ask you, Adam. Um, <laughs> okay. No, no, it's nothing like that. It's just uh, it's a little off topic. But one of the cases you discuss in the book that I was really intrigued with uh, was the case of the fellow Broom Tower, yeah. and yeah. I never read anything like this before. It's a very fascinating case, uh, but it came down to Doctor Thomas Bond took a little bit of a black eye because he concluded. This young man had been murdered, and and in my opinion, yeah. on very for very good reason. And but the police were just you know they they settled this now this is suicide. But uh, basically, this young man, um, his clothing was found strewn in a park. His belongings, his coins, you know, his money was there. These kids yeah. found it. Yeah. His body was in the water. He had no water in his lungs though, so he had been strangled or or otherwise killed um you know
1: and yeah. what is your opinion on that well i i i think um it's interesting that as you say he didn't have any he didn't have any water in his lungs it wasn't a drowning case i think his handkerchief was tied very very tightly in with three knots behind his neck well you know i i i just can't see that if you were gonna if you're gonna commit suicide would you you know you could there were plenty of trees there was a reservoir you could have drowned yourself you could have hung yourself from the tree i don't i don't see that i'd tie my my handkerchief around my neck with three very tight knots at the back if that's the way i was going to kill myself i mean i i I believe that he probably was he probably was murdered um so bond bond you know the evidence is one thing the medical evidence but i suspect the bond probably was correct and and the uh the over or the attempted overturn of the inquest verdict i don't think it actually was officially overturned was was wrong but um i'm i'm not really quite sure why why the police were so keen for that to be uh, sort of quashed
2: do you think uh, i got the impression like in the case of emily horsnell who was clearly murdered but the police had no intention of investigating so they the jury or the 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 inquest returned a uh, a verdict you know that she wasn't murdered um is that just to keep the murder numbers low for
1: the city i've i've no idea about that i've no idea about that but it's uh, it's uh, i mean it, it it certainly could it certainly could be the case but um I, I i would i wouldn't comment but it's certainly a very it's a very it's a strange case but i think the um the ending of it with the verdict and the trying to overturn it i think is uh is even stranger really
2: It is, and it's, and it's uh, for anyone you know listening. You're going to love this. To me, it was very immersive reading. Also, a very creepy story in the book is evolving the the tomb raider, you know, the grave digger. Yeah, Um, Yeah. very. Your your writing was very strong and atmospheric uh, in a lot of Mm -hmm. these. It it really, and it's that's a lot of this. We're talking about Swanson. Adam's writing in the book, to me, I I called my experience immersive because he brought me back into the time frame, kind of brought me along with Swanson to these cases. Lafroy was another, I mean, this could have been written by Agatha Christie, this kind of stuff. Some of the the cases in here, are these are not normal crime cases um, that uh, make for very compelling reading that has almost nothing to do with Jack the Ripper um but would be appealing to anyone who enjoys reading books about jack the ripper because part of the reason i think we all enjoy it is we are fascinated with the victorian era um we are fascinated with victorian you know england um and uh, this book more than any other i've read in recent years really propels you back in time to experience these things. So uh, congratulations on the book, Adam. Uh, yeah. And, you and know, the, the, thank as, you very much.
0: And as I had said, um, th- even th- th- with the Ripper sections of the book, um, it, um, and in particular, the double event, I thought was handled very masterfully in it. And, um, and it, it's some of the best writing um, on the Jack, the Ripper case that we've seen in a long, long time. So at least well, since John Malcolm's
1: thinking. book. <laughs> 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 Part Paul, Paul two.
2: <laughs> yeah his latest yes well let's uh go
0: let's go ahead and wrap it up um and i'll say that um adam and so far as the whitechapel murder investigation and the idea at the seaside home and the possibility that kosminski was Aaron kosminski your book has put some questions to rest but have opened up quite a few more areas to discuss as we've seen today
1: it, well perfect i couldn't couldn't wish for any more really so yeah. if people if people read the book and go away and uh look for some research or or, or re- rethink perhaps ideas that have been entrenched for a number of years in that's that's great
0: oh yeah i mean we we won't ever be able to talk about the seaside home again without mentioning morley house it's impossible yeah i was convinced you know and
2: maybe i'm wrong for that because i'm not as educated as some others about uh the seaside home stuff but man i'll tell you what Every beat by beat, point by point, every any question I could have conceived, Adam answered in the book regarding the seaside home for me. But I'm still open.
0: Yeah, and, and, um, and how that puts the circumstances around the city police's surveillance into context. I mean, your book will be talked about for a long, long time to come. So
2: it it has to be. Yeah, it has to yep. be. I think it's re reinv- it's made the Kozminski thing. It's reopened it for me. I mean, it's just a, now it's like a whole new field of research. I think. I, I I think Excellent. that um,
3: I, I think one reason why I haven't finished it is because I've reread so many sections. Um, if I could have, if I just started from the beginning to the end, I would have been done. If I hadn't reread this section and this section and this section, um, yeah, it's it's worth it. It's worth revisiting because you you get something you get something new out of it every time you look at it. Um, it's
2: yeah, it, it's re inspired me. So I I. I, that's all I've got to say. About well, almost everyone I think is going to start with the Ripper stuff. I yeah. did, but man, it was so damn good. I couldn't wait to get back to the first of the book and just read through. And that's and that's what I did. It's.
0: I really look forward to part two of our discussion. We'll be uh, covering the rest of uh, Swanson's career. Excellent. He did. He did have
1: a um, a career, you know, apart from Kazminsky, So I'm looking forward to it myself. <laughs> he did.
0: Thank you, everybody, for being on the show today. Thank great. you, John. Thanks very much, everybody. Yep. All
2: right, thanks, thanks, guys. Thank you all. all right.